You are listening to Rav Cook on the Haggadah with Yiska Smith, a podcast series from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit elmad.pardes.org. Welcome to Jewish Soul Food, providing spiritual food and nourishment to the soul, where we may encounter the divine presence, the Shekhinah, within and perhaps hear the soul's unique, still small voice, Hakol Dimamadaka, gently leading and guiding each of us on the sweet path of authentic living. Currently, we are exploring some of Rav Cook's illuminating insights on the Haggadah Shal Pesach. The focus will be on moving from the space of spiritual enslavement to freedom, from a place of scarcity to one of abundance, and from a limited consciousness to an expanded one. Last week, we discussed the section towards the end of the Magid step, where Rabin Gamliel mentions, teaches us, that we have to address in the course of the Seder three components, three subjects, in order to have fulfilled the mitzvah of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim, the telling of the coming out of Mitzrayim, which is one of the mitzvot at the, Haggad, at the uh, Seder Shal Pesach. And he says that the three items, <clears throat> the three things we must touch on are Pesach, Matzah, and Malwah. So, in summary, in review, Pesach, what he does, he brings a comparison to a verse in <clears throat> Kings 1, 18-21, with Eliyahu Hanavi, who uses the word, who uses the word Pesach, Admatai Atem Poschim. There, he does not mean what we have customarily defined Pesach as, which is to pass over, where God would pass over the homes of the Jews while slaying the firstborn of the Egyptians. Rather, in the verse in Kings, when Eliyahu Navi is addressing the Jewish people, the word, even the, the, the basic Peshat of the word, Poschim al means how long will you vacillate between these two? Meaning, Hevra. One day you say you believe that the Lord is God. The next day you're following the, the, the Abal, one of the idol worshippers, one of the um, <clears throat> one of the the idol worshiping gods. So decide, decide if the Lord is your God or if, God forbid, Baal is your God. But you can't any longer poschim. You can't do this back and forth. So what Rav Cook does is he takes the use of Pesicha in that way, moves it over to our use of the word regarding the Pasuk in Pesach, that when we say the name of the holiday is Pesach because of the Pasuk that says God passed over, but really what Rav Cook is saying, God did not pass over. God vacillated between 
the homes of the Egyptians and the homes of the Jews. When God entered the homes of the Egyptians, the firstborn was slain. When God entered the homes of the Jews, he revealed himself, actually herself, through Hashra'at HaShekhinah, through the indwelling of the divine presence. And how this, in fact, was able to help the Jewish people actually, at that last minute, leave. And he ends the commentary by saying, and I don't know if we addressed it so much last week, but it was remarkable that the Ashra'at HaShekhinah, which we customarily attributed to being in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, or in the Beit HaMikdash, in Yerushalayim, was actually in the depths of depravity, was actually in Egypt. That's where there was this revelation of Shekhinah. So what we could gather from that is that in our own journey, wherever we may be, we may feel so either sad or depressed or immobile, or we may feel so held back by all those forces that are our own personal Mitzrayim, our own personal Egyptians, even there, we can seek out God's divine presence. It's not only for once we get to the other side and we leave Egypt. It's when we're in the middle of our own spiritual Egypt, we can actually beseech and and ask for God to reveal him, herself, and guide us out of that place. So that was the first mentioning of the three, the Pesach. Then the second was the Matzah. And the famous sentence, the Pasuk, why do we eat Matzah from Exodus 12.39? Because we did not, were not able to tarry. Because we were not able to tarry in Egypt, we had to leave immediately. The dough did not have time to rise. So then again, and this was a teaching from Rav Harlap, who we learned about two weeks ago, how he, a student of Rav Cook, addresses this phrase, Pakod Bakadati, and in this case, the Pakod Bakadati, the I shall surely remember, which is really a double remembrance, not just I shall surely remember, means that not only, it signifies not only that the true Redeemer will reveal the will of the divine remembrance above, but also arouse in Israel the will to quit exile. So that was the Pakod Bakadati, and once Rav Chalop concludes his teaching, once we decided, once we knew we had to leave, we had to leave. There was no tarrying. Lodavakazelitmamea. There was nothing with regards to, well, maybe we should spend one more night, one more day. No, we are leaving. And that's really the reason, the deeper reason, reason why we ate matzah. It was not that the Egyptians were pushing us out. It's that we felt inside, inwardly, inwardly, in the deepest, in the deepest part of ourselves, that it's here. This is the moment. And there's no longer a reason to wait. And he concludes by saying all Israel will feel that their place, he's talking the future, hopefully sooner than later, 
is no longer in exile and that they have no alternative but to enter Eretz Yisrael, and it will be at the proper time. And then the third was Marah. And the key teaching, this was from Rabbi Yitzchak Arieli, <coughs> who also was a very prominent student of Rav Kook. He questions, why would we say Pesach, Matzah, and then Marah? Shouldn't we say Marah before, before the Matzah? Because the Marah, if we're mentioning Marah, because of the bitterness of being enslaved, that happened before we celebrate the freedom. And the matzah is the bread of the freedom. So, in fact, this is what he says. The idea is that... Oh, and he brings down that according to the Rambam, in Hilchot Chametz Matzah, he does say, in fact, that we should eat the marah before the matzah for that reason. But what Rav Arieli says, we can assume... Safely, I believe that this is he was inspired by Rav Cook because he learned with him. He was one of his prominent students. That the idea is that after the redemption came, that's when they began in retrospect to really feel the bitter taste of having had been in exile. And I suggested I, last week, and I suggest it now, that we really, as the PSS always says, Really personalize this. Really personalize this. It's your story that you're sharing at Pesach. This is your story. And maybe you do want to share that, in fact, the reason why you eat Marah after, spiritually, after the Matzah, is because now that you're in a more, let's say, um, redeemed space in your own journey, now you can look back on your lives and feel the bitterness of where you were in a much more poignant and actually in a more painful way. And that's why we eat the maurah after the matzah. Which really just points out to the miracle of it all that we could even be doing this. Okay, we have now concluded Magid and we're moving to the next step. The next step is Rachtsa. Now, this is not the first time we're washing, and this is where the text that I sent you for this week, this is where we're beginning. This is not the first time, as you probably all recall, that we're washing. However, the word is different. When we washed before eating karpas, it was Urachatz, and wash, Rachatz the command, just like Kadesh. It was a command form, wash. Here, Rachtsa is more in the, I forget what it's called in English, it's a noun that has action to it. Maybe someone could remind me. Um, yeah. What? It's a noun. It's a noun. It's a noun. It's a noun. What is it? I didn't hear. It's called a gerund, grammatically, G-E-R-U-N-D. Oh, a gerund. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, yes. So, rachza is exactly that. So, what's the difference between orchatz, the command, wash, and rachza? So, let's see what Rav Cook talks about, how he addresses that. This is the second time the hands are washed. The first time is referred to 
by the word orachatz and wash. This second time is referred to by the word rachza, washing. The subtle linguistic difference between the two expressions is that the noun rachza refers to something permanent. It's an ongoing state. He brings down in the pasuk in Shiha Shirim, Vavav 6-6, where <clears throat> in this love poem, thy teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing, from the rachza, implying that this is done daily or continuously. The imperative or chatz, on the other hand, indicates an improv- improvisation. It's done only one time. So what does that mean? Well, the first washing. Why do we even wash before carpus? Does anyone know why we do wash before carpus? Well, that, that washing is a unique type of washing where traditionally only the leader washes before carpus, yeah? Uh, actually, according to some opinion, according to some opinions, yes, and according to some opinions, no, would be the right answer to that. It's dafka, though. Why is there a washing before? Whether it's from the, by the balabayat or everyone that's participating, men only, women only, who knows? Any combination thereof. Why is there even a washing before a vegetable that's dipped in salt water? <clears throat> Make us ask the question. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's beautiful. Thank you. That's one of the answers. So during the t- okay during the times of the Beit Hamikdash, when people were more sensitive to ritual fitness to be able to come up to the Beit Hamikdash to come up to Harabayat, I say ritual fitness, meaning tahora, but I don't like to use the word tahora because it's not a adjective purity. It's more of a state of. One way to actually transfer tuma is through liquid. So if so, the people, when kahanim for sure, and anyone else who would come up to harabayat were very careful if they were to touch with their if their hands were wet and they were to touch a vegetable or fruit, they would go through the ritual washing first, just to make sure ritually they were fit to touch it, and nothing would be transmitted from or to. So in remembrance of that, once a year, once a year, all of Klal Yisrael does this, or all of the, at the Seder, we do this. But we don't say a bracha, because it's not really for sure clear today if we're even required, because we don't have a Beit HaMikdash. So it's as if the narrator of the Haggadah is informing this step, oh, and wash. Because it's to remind us that there was a time, and of course, God willing, there will be a time when this will be an important step. So as Rav Cook writes, there are those who insist on such a washing of the hands all year before eating a fruit or vegetable that has been moistened. But others do not insist on this stringency. And as a matter of fact, most do not, in my experience. Although I have seen some that do, but a bracha is omitted. A bracha is omitted. There's a... It's written down in Shulchan Aruch. 
Safek Bracha Lahakel. If one has a doubt about making a Bracha, one is lenient not to make the Bracha for fear of saying God's name in vain. So there are cases when it's told, when we're taught that we need to be lenient. So let's say you had a few bites of an apple, another example, and then you said to yourself, oh, did I say a bracha? You don't go back and say the bracha. And this is another example. We're not really sure if we have to wash today without a beta mikdash. So we say we do wash, and you can, you can <clears throat> feel the nuance of the future redemption when in fact there won't be a doubt we will have to wash okay now the washing as he continues before eating the bread however or in this case matzah and halachachli by the way there's no difference between eating bread and eating matzah regarding the halachach preparation of washing the hands and saying the bracha hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz Gosh, I remember when I was younger, and I remember learning about not being able to eat lechem on Pesach. And here we were saying this bracha, hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz. Like, what's going on here? How can we eat lechem when we're not supposed to eat lechem, but it's matzah? It's because lechem in the bracha does not really mean only bread that has that has chametz that is chametz. It also refers to the matzah. So in this case, the matzah, the washing beforehand is an absolute halachah requirement. So we all wash and we all say the bracha. So that's the pshat difference between the two. What they both represent, whether it be the washing that used to be all the time in the Beit HaMikdash or the nuanced language or the sense of in the future, whether it's that washing or this washing over the matzah that we do all the time whenever we have bread, halachachli, lechem, whether it's chametz or not. The bracha is, it has a, an amazing, profound, profound meaning. Because usually when we say a bracha before we observe a mitzvah, the, whatever the mitzvah is, we reference it in the bracha. Like, for example, when we attach a mezuzah, likvoa mezuzah, the bracha ashekidashanu, b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu, and then concerning the attachment of a mezuzah. When we light the lights for Shabbat, lahadlik ne'er shel Shabbat, or Shabbat Kodesh, as some people say. So there's a reference to lighting the lights. Wouldn't one expect the bracha to be Asher Kedeshanu, Vitzivano, Al Ruchitzat Yadayim, concerning the washing of the hands? Logically, that would be a very understandable assumption. So, why is the word Nitilat Yadayim used? Nitila does not mean to wash. And some people to emphasize that it's nitilatyadayim, which means actually nitila, the word litol has about seven different definitions. It's very context it's a word that is very contextual. In this sense, it means to raise up, 
to elevate up. So some people are noheg, some people have the custom, when they say the bracha, you wash your hands three times, three times, and as you're drying them, Baruch Hashem, Elokeinu Melech HaOlam, Al, and they raise their hands, Netilat Yadayim, because that's the action that is connected to the wording in the bracha. So what does raising the hands mean? Can anyone suggest? <clears throat> well, you're, you're raising up the act to creating a holy act. What is the act, though? What is the actual... Yes, there is a raising up, but what is the act? <clears throat> It's not just the act of raising the hands. It, that is metaphoric or symbolic of another elevation. Eating the vegetable? No, a, this is... It's sort of bringing holiness into, into the relationship with the vegetable. Or the bread, or the bread, because today's time we don't say the bracha with the vegetable on the tilatyadayim, even though at one time we did. What it represents is as follows... When eating bread is considered to be, the bread is the mainstay of a meal. Actually, to the point where, according to Jewish law, if you sit down and you have several slices of bread, and let's say with a few pieces of cheese or a salad, what we would call a light meal. If there's bread there, that's considered a su'uda, a meal. If you have a meal where you're not having bread and you have, let's say, three different salads and you have some fish and you may have a cup of soup, quantity-wise you have a lot more food but you don't have bread, most, most again, not every rabbi agrees on just about everything, but most authorities say that's not considered a meal even though there's more food because there's no bread. So bread is considered to be the definition of a meal. The eating, when we sit down to eat, and this is something we need to do several times a day, this is one of the most common areas of behavior that we share with the animals. Actually, there are two, there are two very basic instinctive drives to exist. One is the drive to eat, and one is the drive to procreate. And Victor, um, in Man's Search for Meaning, by, um, who wrote? Um, Victor Frankel. Victor Frankel, thank you. He said, in his studies, this was one of the few areas in, that he has studied where there were centers really close, close, like reaching critical mass of men living together and there was hardly any homosexual activity ever going on. Why? Because the people were starving to death. And the drive, the instinctive drive to eat is even greater than the sexual drive to procreate. So that's, that's why you see in a lot of prisons, there's more gay type of, I, I don't know, I'm no expert to, to say, but there's more of that type of behavior and in all women population prisons. 
But he thought it was remarkable <clears throat> when he was studying psychologically as a, as a therapist how the, the need to eat when, God forbid, someone is starving, it really brings out the animal in them much more than when someone is deprived of sex. So here, when we sit down to eat a meal, this is where we are most animal-like. And if you see, or we could be most animal-like. So the meal that has bread, which is a meal, which is eating, and the hands are all metaphors for being engaged in the physical world, but not to be engaged as an animal not to be engaged from a place of scarcity or in the name of survival or in the name of survival of the fittest. So if there's more for you, there's less for me. It's to take that act using our hands because the hands are used to farm, to build, to produce, to really work in the world rather than the sechel and the heart, which is used more in the spiritual or more abstract disciplines. So the hands are the tool, they're the, they're the metaphor. I mean, we use other parts of the body, obviously, but they are used customarily in the teachings, especially in mystical Judaism. The adayim become the metaphor for that engagement in the physical world. And we dafka want to raise the hands when we are eating which is probably the most animalistic behavior we can engage in, that we share with the rest of the animals. And to the point that was made, we elevate that up, not that we deprive ourselves of the food. Again, this is a beautiful insight, just this bracha, into how the rabbis encourage us, be in the world, eat a good meal, sustain yourself, you have a drive to eat. That's part of being human. Elevate it. Give it more significance. So it becomes actually a spiritual act. And that's what Natilat Yadayim is about. It's not necessarily just about washing the hands. So this is a mitzvah that really requires chevra. It really requires kavanah. It really requires intention. Hence, some people physically do raise up their hands when they're saying that, when they're saying the bracha. So I bless you that you have beautiful sedarim and you have beautiful sumptuous meals and you eat with a good bateyavon, hearty appetite, and that you equally elevate it when you say the bracha on the tilat yudayim. So, are there any questions regarding the rachza, the washing? insights, mentionings. Yeah, it's good. I, this is really interesting to me because and, and I'm not really sure I followed everything. So, I guess my question is, is the elevation of the hands and the brocha a, um, a metaphor or a blessing that actually acknowledges that we have this animal behavior and therefore we are connected to the rest of the animals in the world, but at the same time recognizing that we have some sort of control over that and we are doing this brocha 
you know, because we have that control as humans and we are, you know, also separate from the rest of the animals and, and we have these abilities to then go ahead and, you know, do what we do in the Seder. I'm just, it just is very interesting to me that, that there's this reference you make to being connected to the rest of the animal world. Yes. But do yes. it in a very deliberate way, a very human way. Yes. Yeah. That's why Kavanah is so important because we'll eat every day whether we have Kavanah or not, whether we wash or not. <clears throat> we still eat. But we can take that action and we can reveal the divine presence through it. We can say that with the sustainability that I'm engaging in to keep my body healthy, I'm actually able to reveal the divine presence in a more astute, in a more pronounced way than if, God forbid, I was sick and I did not take care of my body. So that's why Jewish people, we know we celebrate su'udot, the meals around the table, Shabbat, the Chagim, the Seder. This is something that's part and parcel of who we are as a people in our culture. But it's always to elevate it. There's a... uh, <clears throat> there's a cute little, I'd say cute, yeah, there's a cute little story that teaches us how it can be the opposite, and we, and we have to be careful. <clears throat> one of the Rebbe's in one of the towns yesteryear says about this Hasid who runs home after davening on Sukkot night. <clears throat> He's all excited <clears throat> to be able to sit in the sukkah. And he's looking forward to eating and drinking and having the Yom Tov meal. So he rushes in to the sukkah and his wife brings everything, brings the bread out, the kiddush, and she has the soup terrain there and he makes kiddush. And then after kiddush, we say on Sukkot, also the bracha, Asheh Kedeshano, Bamisotabetzivano, Leshev Basukkah. Which means who has commanded us to sit in the sukkah. So his wife says, Mashallah, the way you're looking at that soup terrain, you should say, <laughs> that God has commanded us to sit in the soup instead of the sukkah. He was so focused on the eating, she said, what happened to the bracha? <laughs> so it's, a, it's kind of like Jewish humor to remind us as much as the food is to be enjoyed, when we say a bracha, we, we should have the kavanah for what the bracha is intending us to. So when you say the bracha, and you can raise your hands, as much as we are to look forward, we're encouraged to look forward to the beautiful, sumptuous meal that follows at 10.30 at night, around 10, I think, at 10, 10.30. And yes, enjoy it. And b'teavon, mamash, really, really do. But know that at the same time, that very same action has another component to it. And we as humans can make that decision. That's where we are different. We're similar and yet we're different. The very same action can be spiritual. That's the reason. I mean, I'm thinking a lot about hands because there's so many, there's so many metaphors with hands you know um 
and and when I think about this context, where where I go in my mind is the Hebrew people were slaves. They the work of their hands was building, you know, bricks out of straw when there wasn't even any more straw. You know, all of the horrible life of of, of that was so dependent on the strength and dexterity of their hands. So, so now in this, you know, new place of freedom, our hands are, are for a different purpose or hopefully for a different purpose. And so the raising of the hands is, is symbolic to me of, of a connection to freedom and the chance and the opportunity to engage in the world using our hands in ways we can choose. Right, because we're, right. we're, we're free to use our hands as we will. We still might make bricks with them, but <laughs> we might become brick masons, but, yeah. but it's a whole different way of using them. Yes, that. yes, indeed. And we can even use our hands to express an artistic personality, to sculpt, right. to paint. The, the hands are a metaphor for everything we do in the physical world, but everything we do in the physical world, it's not either physical or spiritual. That is really what the teaching is. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Because when, if you speak to a potter, if you speak to a sculptor, if you speak to a painter, they're using their hands in a very physical way, but they're expressing something in their soul. That's another example of choosing to use the hands or using the hands to provide sustainability, a livelihood. Like you said, I could, I could still use my hands to make bricks, but I choose to be employed to make bricks in order to pay my mortgage, my rent, support my family, to support myself. So there's freedom in how we use our hands. Thank you. That's, so, that's eloquent. That's wonderful. Okay, so now that we've washed the hands and we're all sitting around the table waiting for the last person to come back, we're all quiet, we make the hamotzi. Now, this is a teaching from Rav Cook. Ah, I just feel the further we get in, the further we develop, his, his, how he just looks at everything is so layered, so layered. All right, why do we say hamotzi lachem in haaretz? Because that's the bracha we say over the bread, just like we say borei pari ha'etz, borei pari ha'adama, borei minei mezonot, she'akol bidvaro. This is part of a group of brachot called brachot nehanin. Lahanot means to enjoy. So before we partake of the food from God's world, since it says in Psalms, lahashem haaretz umeloa, that to God belongs the world and the fullness therein, before we take something that doesn't belong to us, <clears throat> in essence, because we're given permission, we acknowledge that it's, it's not ours. We don't own it. We're eating it because the, because the Creator allows us, and we enjoy that. So there's a whole group of brachot that we make before we engage in an action that gives us enjoyment. One of those is the eating. So we say hamotzi lechem in haaretz because we're about to eat, in this case, matzah. Therefore, it's preceded by a bracha 
of one of those classes, that class of brachot, brachot hanehenin. So we would say in Hebrew, tehene, teheni, enjoy. Yes, we do enjoy it. But by saying the bracha, it's an acknowledgement that it really didn't belong to us to begin with, and only through the chesed and the kindness of God, God is sustaining us through allowing us to eat it. However, when we say borei pari ha'etz, blessed are you, the Lord our God, who has created fruit of the tree, or who has created which are vegetables, fruit of the land. We're making a direct connection to what it is we're eating and the fact that there's a creator who created it. But that's not the case with Hamotzi. Again, maybe this has troubled or bothered or, or challenged many of you. It challenged me for years. Hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz. Why don't I say borei Lechem. Why wouldn't I say borei lechem? Why wouldn't I? There's, there's really an obvious answer. Because you're praising Hashem, not just whatever it is you're eating about. Yes, I'm, yes, but let's go a little bit further. When I hold an apple in my hand, the apple is ready to be, I take, I pluck it from the tree, I wash it, I say Bore Pariha eats, and I eat it. Because it literally grew from the tree. Bore Pariha Adama. I'm taking a cucumber. I pick it, I pick it out of my garden, I wash it, and I acknowledge Bore Pariha Adama. But what about Lechem? Why don't I say Baruch Atahashem Elokeinu Melacha Olam Bore Lechem? Because it has to be transformed in order to be eaten. Yes, because God did not create bread. Yes. What did God create? The, the soil, the wheat, the spelt, whatever of the five grains I have planted and I have harvested, and then I have to separate the wheat from the chaff, then I have to grind it. I go through, I go through, the human being now is engaged in many, many, many steps before it comes out of the oven as a loaf of bread or as a, a piece of matzah. So the bracha is hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz. We're praising God, yes, it is a praise for sure, but we're praising God for the taking out of bread from a place where it did not grow as bread. Let's see what Rav Cook teaches us. Simply, this heading of motzi refers to the blessing recited before eating bread, ha-motzi lechem and ha'aretz, who brings bread forth from the earth, motzi like yitzi at Mitzrayim. It's the same shurash, yitzi at Mitzrayim, the coming out of Egypt, Hamotzi lechem in ha'aretz, the coming out of bread from the earth. But there is much more to the name than just this simple allusion. Motzi refers to the deeper processes at work in extracting bread from the raw materials of the earth and to the choosing of Israel from among the nations. He makes a parallel here just as we were taken out of Egypt. 
just as that, the bread is taken out of the land. There's a choosing. Let's read further. The other blessings recited before eating food do not reflect the fact that many different factors contributed to the end product of the food. It is only before eating bread, the staple of the human being, and in brackets, hence, that's why we wash over the bread, and that becomes a su'uda. Halachli, that's a meal, because bread is considered to be the staple of the human being. So before eating bread, what we do is we actually review the process whereby the raw materials of the earth contribute to the final product. Motsi, bringing forth, suggests it's a paradox. And many times Rav Cook teaches messages to us, whatever it is he's messaging, through the paradox. So yes, Hevra, paradox is alive and well in Jewish thought. Very much so. This is the paradox. One, whereby the final product is connected to its previous elements. And a second, whereby it is disentangled from its past and emerges in the present a distinct entity. So you could look at a loaf of bread, a piece of matzah, and on one hand you're looking at something that has a direct connection to its source in the ground doesn't look like wheat. It doesn't look like spelt. It doesn't look like how oat or rye or barley grows. So on one hand, yes, it comes from the ground, but it's distinctly now a separate entity. And that's the point that Rav Cook wants to teach us. So let's read further. This is really the teaching. All of this is symbolic of the bringing forth of the Hamotzi of Israel from among the nations. There's a pasuk. If you look at the box below, <clears throat> it's in Exodus 6 7. Vav Zion. Vidatam ki ani Hashem lokechem, Hamotzi etchem mitachat zivlot mitzrayim. The very same word is used. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who took you out who brought you forth. The exact same word as hamotzi lechem in ha'aretz. Instead, it's hamotzi etchem mitachat sivlot mitzrayim. So because of that, Rav Cook, in his last paragraph here, says the following. <clears throat> On the one hand, just like a loaf of bread or a piece of matzah, Israel emerges from the raw material of humanity as a whole. The way the bread came from everything in the ground, the seeds that were planted, and then as it grew. Yet, on the other hand, Israel achieves independence. And then we take on a unique sanctity. That's what happened at Har Sinai. So you see the paradox of Hamotzi Lachamin Haaretz. This, he's saying, this bracha is about us. This is about us. This is what we're celebrating. We are part of humanity. The way a loaf of bread is part of where it came from. It didn't just drop from the heavens. However, with the human being's engagement, 
we are in our own Jewish identity as a nation, as a member of the nation, as a member of the community, we're taking all that raw potential and we're turning it into dough and we're turning it into a loaf of bread or in this case, a piece of matzah. So it's not just God has chosen us to be distinct from among the nations in order to be, by the way, a light unto the nations, not to sit God forbid, in the white ivory tower and look down at everybody. But he has chosen us to be exemplary of what it means to be in partnership with him, her, it. And we take all that raw material, all that potential, where we came from, which is basic humanity, and through Torah, we actually transform it into a beautiful piece of matzah or a beautiful loaf of bread or a beautiful challah. We've done that. That's the relationship. That's the partnership with God. So the freedom that we're celebrating at the Seder, reminiscent of Bechol Dov Vador in each and every generation and the Balatanya added and in every single day that we each see ourselves as part of this process you coming out of Egypt is because God has blessed you with the potential and you've actualized it you've actualized your own becoming free we physically picked ourselves up and walked out of Egypt Yes, God provided the raw materials, the way God provides the raw materials for the grain. But we know what happens if you just take the grain, you don't have bread. So a great idea for your, at your Seder table is to maybe share how you've taken your own grain metaphorically, you've taken your own potential, your own connection to just basic humanity and what you've done with that to be more free, to be more in this relationship with God, using your brain, using your heart, using your hands, how you think, how you speak, how you behave. All that are all the processes, all those steps from when we first take that grain from the ground to when we open the oven and there's a piece of matzah for our Seder table. That's Motsi. Any, any reflections on that or questions? Are we clear about that? It's basically taking ownership over your journey. Because some people want to make a a dough of a sourdough, other people want to make a dough from spelt, other people want to make a dough from wheat, from rye, and put different types of either berries in it, or as some people are known to do, to put pieces of chocolate in it. Some people with white flour, some people with whole wheat flour, all of that really are all metaphors for our own Jewish identity in how we connect to God. There's no one way to make a challah. There's no one way to make a piece of matzah. There's no one way to be in relationship with God. This is all about 
you being really present in your journey to be free, to be who you believe God wants you to be. So now that we've made the bracha, it's time to eat. So it's time to eat the matzah. Let's see now. Now matzah has many, many, many different meanings. We'll cover one meaning now, and then we'll pick up next week with a second meaning as we conclude the series of, of Rav Kook on the Haggadah. So the poverty of the bread. Does anyone know, by the way, why we refer to the bread? Where do we have a reference in the Haggadah to the bread being the bread of poverty? Lechem Oni. Lechem Oni is the Hebrew translation of what we see. A poor person's bread. Or, right. In or the very beginning of the Seder. Ha Lachma Anya. And that is Lechem Oni. In the very, very beginning. And then all those who are hungry come and eat. And this year we're here. Next year we'll be. So in that very beginning, we're referring to Matzah as Lechem Oni. Lachma Anya in the Aramaic. Yes. So the poverty of the bread and the hasty exodus from Egypt dictate the form of the matzah. The hasty exodus was the divine plan to revolutionize Israel in a way that would never occur had Israel gone through the evolutionary process that nations normally undergo. Instead, all the great energies that slumbered within the soul of the people during hundreds of years of Egyptian bondage suddenly erupted to the surface. It was like a volcano. It was in, it was in potential in all of us because we had this tradition, we knew that eventually we would not spend the rest of eternity in Egypt. It was just a matter of the right time. And then the Redeemer would appear and he would give us the message. He would pass on to us that secret message, the formula, but it was in us. We knew this was not a surprise. From lowly slaves, we were actually transformed. He says overnight. Overnight is seven weeks. It was a, it was a seven-week overnight process. But compared to 210 years, seven weeks is overnight. We were transformed into a cultured, godly nation. That's why we couldn't receive the Torah the day after we came out of Egypt. We were in no place to receive it. The reason behind all of this, what is the reason why we were not in a position to receive the Torah yet? Was that there could be no admixture of the previous Egyptian culture. We needed to break from it. We needed a complete, quick, clean break. The little cultural influence that Egyptian idolatry exerted was, rena was renounced prior to the slaughtering of the Korban Pesach. That's when we cut. Look at the Pasuk in Devarim. It's part of Shir HaShirim. It's part of the beautiful um, the, the, the Shir in Hazinu. The song, Hashem, Hashem Badad. Badad means to be alone, like a chayal bodad in modern day Hebrew is a soldier whose parents are not living in Israel. So he or she are, are alone. 
Hashem badad yinchanu, that Hashem alone guided them, meaning Israel, ve'en imo el nechar. And the people had no other power with them. Here we could say El, it's not referring to God, it means a foreign God. We were cleansed. When we sat down to eat the Korban Pesach, that was our break from idolatry. Once Israel were devoid of any national culture, meaning what did we leave with, Hevra? What did we leave with? If we were devoid of Egyptian attachment to idolatry and we weren't yet ready to receive the Torah, well, who were we? What were we? Nothing. Nothing. We had no taste. We had no substance. We were all potential. The seven weeks brought us from emptying ourselves out of Egypt and getting ready to put in godliness or reveal the godliness that was in potential with us. But at that moment... We were, we were, in a pure way, we were flat. In a pure way, we were flat. We had no traits. We, we had no characteristics. We wouldn't have the Torah yet. All we had was, wow, what just happened? <laughs> like yesterday I was a slave, and now I'm here, and I'm free. <sighs> and could you imagine coming out of the Kriyat Yamsuf? You have nothing to hold on to that's your own. Well, we have ethics, we have values, we have traditions. We had none of that yet. We had nothing. A good nothing. Something to build with. Then we were ready to have stamped upon them the divine form. But we had a first empty out. Again, this sudden revolution rather than a gradual evolution, was necessary in order to receive the Torah. It couldn't take years and years and years and years. We wouldn't have lasted. Once we came out, we had to make a clean break. And I may suggest that in our, in our own journeys, there are times when to take that next step, we need to make a clean break. Once we make that break... And then we go forward, then we can look back and maybe draw on some of our own personal narrative, our own personal history. But as I share, and I've shared parts of my personal journey, and I invite you to do the same, that's what it was for me at first. I had to make a clean break. I had to start out flat. I had to eat matzah. Then, once I grew with a new identity, I was able to look back over 50 years and say, well, what can I reclaim to bring into where I am now? We learned another teaching from Rav Cook that, in fact, what we were able to bring to God was we knew what it was like to be enslaved, so to be submissive, to be obedient. We were able to go back to that experience and elevate it, to take that energy, that capacity to say, well, even though I may not be in the mood, this is what God wants of me. Where did we get that from? Egypt. However, when we left, we had to make the clean break. You could see he's as much of a psychologist here as he is a poet, a prophet, and a great Talmud Chacham. 
the least trace of culture would have prevented the sanctity of the Torah and the divine form unique to Israel from impressing them. Because we would have had a trace of, to use Pesach language, chametz. And that's why, halachachli, a mashahu of chametz, meaning even less than a 60th, usually a 60th nullifies. On Pesach, even a mashahu, even a, the smallest, smallest piece is chametz. And that's why spiritually we need to clean house. We really need to clean house so we can make that clean break. We also need to clean physically the house. But it begins with cleaning house inside. The symbol for this cultural tastelessness is the tasteless matzah. The motzi is bringing Israel forth from these from the nations, engenders the matzah, the unleavened, tasteless, and I'll add to the word flat. Matzah. So I bless you that as you move through your journey, as someone asked me last week, what what if when you move to your next step, there's pain or there's darkness or there's something that you'd rather not, you'd wish you could just hop over. We all have that feeling. But as one of my great teachers, Rob James, says, it's not to enjoy the pain or the darkness. That's not what's required of us, but to lovingly embrace it. To lovingly embrace it because it is part of the journey. So when you get to that place and you make your clean break, but you yet have not forged your new identity or that new step that you're moving towards, it could be just for a day, just for an hour, whatever it is, a moment. That moment of tastelessness, of flatness, lovingly embrace it. It's yours. It's a part of who you are. And that's the deeper reason we're eating matzah. Thank you. Thank you for downloading this podcast. For more original Torah content, visit almad.pardes.org.